All right, that looked like an exodus. <laughs> um, we are um, at the primary intersection between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, in it, the remembrance of Passover events uh, reminds us when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt and made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai and then ultimately brought them into the land promised to Abraham. It's also a remembrance of the uh, passion of our Lord Jesus, uh, the suffering servant of God found in Isaiah 53, who endured the death of the cross, was buried and resurrected. And in this he became the sacrifice for sins, first of Jacob and then of all the world, uh, as the ultimate Passover for Israel and those of us from the nations who trust in the God of Abraham. But this week also connects us to more than that. In some sense, this week is the hub of all the holy days because it connects to Shavuot um, when the commandments were given uh, because in the context of this, uh, what could not be done through the Torah is done through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. The Torah was not the problem. The problem was sin and our flesh. Uh, it connects to uh, the uh, Yom Kippur in the ministry of the high priest where Jesus becomes the sacrifice for sins. He ascends up to the right hand of the Father. Uh, as our great high priest. And it anticipates the fulfillment of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel when Jesus will return and sit on the throne of his father David in the kingdom. In that sense, it uh, connects to tabernacles. So in that sense, all of the biblical holy days uh, intersect in the meanings of these two uh, celebrations. The celebration of uh, Passover, Pesach, and the, and the celebration of the passion and resurrection of our Lord. The rituals of the Passover Seder and the Last Supper Eucharist express these truths and invite us to experience them through the ceremonies. We are to experience it as if we were part of those events. And the internalization of this is critical for our own identity and worldview and certainly for our children and our grandchildren as we become united Israel and the nations in the Messiah. The resurrection is of particular importance in this, and we're told in several passages uh, of the New Testament that we are to consider ourselves raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavens. So today I want to look at that. I want to look at it through an idea that's pretty um, uh, significant for me, uh, I first got exposed to this faith, though I certainly didn't understand it, uh, right around the age of 11 or 12 when I began hanging out at a uh, Dutch Reformed church, uh, invited to sing in the kids' choir, and uh, the music drew me in. One of the things that uh, I remember was uh, the Easter celebration and some of the hymns that we sang Today, the one that captured me the most was Christ the Lord is Risen Today, and we sang it earlier today. Uh, that hymn has a statement in the last uh, verse, and in that sense, it became somewhat for me the focus of what this week is. The last verse goes, Soar we now where Christ is led, Alleluia. 
following our exalted head. Alleluia. Raised like Him, like Him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. That phrase, ours the cross, the grave, the skies, became a theme for me in almost all of my Easter sermons uh, during the entire time I was at First Baptist Westminster. We actually had banners up on the sanctuary that said, ours the cross, ours the graves, ours the skies. And that became the message uh, each year. And I thought, I've done it once or twice with us, but I thought I would return to that this year as well. Because as I went through the uh, service of Palm Sunday and the various services we had, particularly the darkness service, doing it the old way that we had, I re-experienced that meaning of what this week is about. And so we are ending, in some sense, that season of the cross and entering the season of the empty tomb. And the empty tomb is not one day. It is this whole season where, for the next 40 days up till ascension, we focus on the resurrection as we observe the various Sabbaths leading up to Pentecost or Shavuot. But then, the ascension is connected to the return, and we have the skies as the focus. The cross, the grave that's empty, and then the skies in which we anticipate the second coming. So I want to look at those things and remind us that we are doing what the earliest believers did in that we are waiting for the Lord to return because He has risen and He has ascended into heaven. So I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 5 to 10. This is uh, uh, a... What did I do here? I think I did it, what I always do. I'm at the wrong place in my book. Nope, I've got it. All right. So, I always look at the wrong page and then I turn it and then I'm, I can't find it. So, I'm back there. So, Paul says these words. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Interesting combination. The tribulation and the struggle, but the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that you have no need to say anything. Interesting that their lives became an understanding. What they were doing became known so that people didn't actually need a report about them. Uh, everyone knew. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. In our context, we don't turn from idols. In many cases, if we're converts, we turn from secularism into uh, faith. But it's the same idea. And verse 10 is critical. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. Now this notion then, 
is that we are waiting for something. We are in between two major events. We're in between the events uh, that we celebrated this week and the ascension, which will close out that part, and then the second coming, the return of the Lord. And so we have three things that are ours, the cross, the grave, and the skies. The cross is ours. That's both shocking and amazing, because the cross is the sign of death, both that of Jesus and of our own. His death and our death become connected. I don't mean our physical death that we will someday experience. I mean what we have been doing as we've completed Lent. The season of the cross where we remind ourselves of the requirement to take up our own cross and follow Him. Many of us have donned a cross during this season. And as we place that cross around our neck, we recited Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our reminder is that the cross is also ours. Our response is to remember that we are to take up the cross, to die daily to self, which is the flesh. Even though we're living in this body of flesh, we are not living by the flesh. We do not continue to live for ourselves. That's an important point. The life that we now live in the flesh is not to follow the flesh and its passions and lusts, but to live by faith, trust of Christ who now lives in us. We become his body as we become his disciples. Uh, Wednesday night as we were uh, meditating on the darkness and the cross, I remembered a song that I wrote uh, many, many years ago. I think I've sung it here maybe once or twice. The cross in the middle was meant for me. It was my guilt and my sin that nailed him to the tree. The one in the middle died there for me. The cross in the middle was meant for me. But since he bore it, I'll live eternally. Galatians 2.20 has a verse that follows. Uh, and I think we should look at that because it's very easy to take a verse out of context. So when Paul talks about this and says, I'm crucified with Christ, verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The law, the Torah, was never intended to save anyone. Its purpose was to let us know what God's commandments are, But in the struggle to do them, Israel would find, and we would find as well, that in trying to do them, we can. For as Paul says, what the law could not do, weak through the flesh, God did in sending his son, condemning sin in the flesh, so that in the resurrection, and our resurrection, we will be able to obey him fully in the kingdom. We struggle against it now, but we struggle because we don't live by the flesh. We follow after the Spirit to put to death the the activities of the flesh. So it's important that we remember that we're called to be His body, 
We are called to be his disciples. We are called to gather together as a community of faith and become an extension and a manifestation of the Lord while we wait for him to return from heaven. Now many of us who put the cross on in the morning with Galatians 2.20 and then remove the cross on, uh, at the, in the evening uh, read or recited Galatians 6.14. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Our battle is not just with the flesh. Our battle is also with this conforming pressure towards the world. Got to have a life, got to have a life, got to do the life and do it the way the American culture tells us. But we have been crucified to that way of life. It is dead to us. We are dead to the world. Now, when I was a teenager, we used to say we were dead to the world. That meant we were exhausted, right? But the reality is being dead to the world means that we're not conformed to that, but we are struggling towards obedience of faith, which is uh, to struggle towards obedience in holiness and in goodness. And so the text makes it clear that the world is dead to us and we are dead to it. We're no longer of this world. We're not to be conformed to it. We're not to assimilate into it. And that's becoming more and more difficult. There was a time when the more you were part of the American culture, the more you gave the appearance of being uh, Christian. The values of the uh, traditional culture were largely influenced by Christian values. And so when I was a kid growing up, the parents, that my parents who were not believers, my neighbors who were not believers, uh, my teachers who often were not believers... And the church all said the same thing about values and about how to live life. So you could almost be in the culture and be influenced by Christian behavior. Those days are gone. Now almost anything that we confess, anything that we believe, begins to be seen as anti-cultural. Not counter-cultural, anti-cultural. Our words from our Lord are considered hate speech. And that's a struggle that our children and our grandchildren are going to face much more than even we have. And so in that sense, uh, the cross of Jesus has separated us from our old life in the flesh and the world so that we might live a new life in Him. And that that life is geared not to this life, but to the world to come. So ours is the cross, but ours is also the grave. The grave is ours in that it is central to our faith and to our hope. We have gone through the period of the cross, the season of the cross, which is about self-denial. We are now moving into the celebration of resurrection, that death has been conquered, will be conquered, and that we will be able to live eternally. And so... Ours is the grave. A dead savior is no savior. A dead prophet may speak good words, but if they can't save him, who can they save? The resurrection of Jesus is vital for our assurance of faith. And we believe these things as the essence of our faith. Two things are important in the Christian proclamation. That he incarnated, that he came into this reality, 
and he was raised from the dead in this reality. In other words, both of these things that we believe, the incarnation that we celebrate at Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, and the resurrection that we celebrate now, are both interjected into our reality. They're not just words telling us about somewhere far away. They're about this reality. And that's what they have to be. For if he did not become flesh, he cannot understand us. And if he did not rise from the dead in this world reality, all we have is a promise of something beyond this life. Not something that transforms this life and this creation into the, into the new creation. And so it's important that we understand that his resurrection took place in flesh and blood. When he died, when he was buried, and when he rose. It's a real resurrection. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us the implication of this. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That phrase is the one that has always been the two-edged sword for me. I have lived my life losing a lot of relatives and a lot of friends. And as we grow older, there's more of that. And those things become a mockery of what we believe if there is no resurrection. It is hard to bear that they have perished but they have not perished because the resurrection is real. Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied because this life, nothing is permanent. The resurrection of Jesus into this life is the only permanent thing and it will guarantee the permanence of our resurrection as well, which Paul goes on to say in the rest of this. There is no faith, there is no hope, and there is no use in believing or following Christ if he did not bodily rise from the dead. Because we are embodied spirits without the redemption of the body. We're just kidding ourselves. And our loved ones are gone unless there is a resurrection. But there is a resurrection. Now, this is really important. The Bible knows that it's easy to say, oh, you know, when we leave here, we go to be with God. Okay. Or someone could say, you know, if we leave here, we go to live on the moon. You can say whatever you want. That doesn't make it real. I want you to catch that Jesus got that. He understood that. And he used that to convince us that what he was manifesting was the truth of spiritual reality that in in Vades itself into this reality. I want you to look at Luke chapter 5. 
Luke chapter 5, verse 24. I'm going to pick it up at 24, but I want you to uh, tell you this story. This is the story of the uh, young men who are carrying a man who's paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of Jesus. They couldn't find a way, so they tear off the roof and they let him down in front of Jesus. You know that story. And so what happens is, uh, Jesus, seeing their faith, verse 20, said, Friends, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now the scribes and the Pharisees go crazy. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, get up and walk? Now the reality is, the reality is, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. They've gone to be with the Lord. It's easy to say that. You don't have to prove it. You have to prove it somehow here, not there. We won't know till then, right? So look what Jesus does. Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, though they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. The resurrection took place in this reality so that we would be assured of that reality. Now the truth is, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven and it happened than to say, take up your bed and walk. So there's a little play back and forth here. The greater one really is the spiritual, but mere words are not the answer. We don't believe in words. We believe in the one who spoke those words, died, and rose again. And therefore, we have faith in what he says. Ours, the grave. And then, ours, the skies. The skies are ours as well. Uh, this speaks to the ascension and the return of the Lord. Paul told the Thessalonians that they were waiting for the Son of God. Those who have believed in the cross and the resurrection have also believed in the ascension and the return. Now, the ascension of our Lord is hardly mentioned among free church people. It's, it's there, but it's not celebrated. But it's one of the obligation days of celebration in the liturgical churches. So it's an important thing. So, he ascended into the skies and he will return into the skies. So I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 1. Verse 6. Now after Jesus' resurrection and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, they must have assumed then if he's teaching about the kingdom of God, it's going to happen right now. So they said to him, Lord... Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? You're raised now. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. Then it says, after he said this, this is on the Mount of Olives, he was lifted up where they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, two men in white clothing, there's always these two guys with white clothing, right? Uh, Stood beside them, saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now I want you to catch this. They're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus starts ascending. The clouds are there. He just kind of goes into the clouds. And they do what we would do. And all of a sudden there's two guys right here. What are you looking up there for? He went up into heaven. He's coming back the same way you'll see him. That's the promise. The skies are ours. And so this becomes really important. When Linda and I first went to uh, uh, Israel, we went when they got half their rainfall in one week. And it was the week that we were there. So it was rainy everywhere. We were in the shepherd's caves and it's flooding inside. The only thing that looked appropriate was the Garden of Gethsemane because it looked sad, right? Uh, But everything else was awful. And I wanted to get a picture of the city. We're standing on the Mount of Olives. And I wanted to get a picture of the city with the Temple Mount area and all of that. And I had my camera and my battery was going bad and I I wanted to see this. And uh, it's just just clouds everywhere. And all of a sudden, it's like light on me. And I look up and the clouds right above me had opened up. And I thought, wow! You know, I get a picture of that. Well, all I got a picture was blue sky because I didn't didn't have the wide lids on there, right? So it didn't show it. doesn't give anything of what's there. But there was, for me, that moment of what the disciples probably imagined as he went up into the clouds and they saw him. And when he returns, every eye, the scripture says, will see him. Man, he will come with ten thousands of his saints. Those who we have lost will come with him in that time. For the Lord will descend with the shout of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain be caught up with them. That's great because the skies are also ours. The cross and the grave and the skies. I have one more text I want you to look at. It's in the book of Hebrews. When I speak at other churches and I uh, or speak to other groups of Christians in other settings and I talk about Jesus as our great high priest, they all know that. But they don't seem to have any understanding of what it is. Because they don't have the appreciation of Yom Kippur. They don't understand that ministry of the high priest and entering in. They, They kind of know the words. But we, because of our high priest service, really have a sense of what that is. And in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 11, 
The scripture says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then in verse 24, he picks up and says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place every year, year by year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would need to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But now once... At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him, like the Thessalonians, like us. He's entered in there. He's dealt with our sin. We're not done dealing with our sin. He's done dealing with our sin. And His blood is sufficient for all of our sin. And when He returns, He's not returning to deal with our sin. He's going to bring us what His name speaks. Yeshua. The salvation of the Lord. Ours, the cross. Ours the skies. I mean, ours the grave. And ours the skies. As the song says, Alleluia, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.